This week's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, Robert Brokamp. Hello, Allison Southwick. And I also have <laughs> Jim Royal. He's an analyst here at The Motley Fool, and you do not have to sound as goofy as Bro just did. Fantastic. I'm oh, able to achieve that. He's a doctor. He doesn't have to do that. <laughs> All right, Jim is here uh, to help us tackle our topic today, and that is... The world of finance and economics is full of people saying that certain events would never happen. Sure, that'll happen the day the Cubbies win the World Series. So, today we're going to talk about a few that'll never happens that actually happened in the world of finance. We'll also answer your question about how much you should invest in one stock. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers. And this week's question comes from John in Queens. Jim, feel free to chime in. Sure. Okay. Allison and Bro, love the show. Seriously, I'm that guy hitting refresh on his iTunes at 7.01 every Tuesday morning. Thanks, John. Thank you. <laughs> I've recently come across an investing platform, Motif.com, that allows you to pick up to 30 individual stocks and essentially build your own custom mutual fund. My question is about how the individual stocks should be weighted. You can either weight each stock the same, in my case, each stock would be roughly 4% since I've come up with 25 stocks, or you can weight by market cap of the company, or you can customize and weight each one individually. So many options here. Oh my goodness. I did a mock test of weighting by market cap, and instantly Apple became nearly 24% of my entire portfolio, which didn't seem advisable in terms of diversification or my own goals. So, which would you choose? So, for those of you not familiar with Motif, it's actually an interesting little platform. It allows to buy you. You can either create your own basket of stocks, or they have some that are preset, and you can buy the whole kit and caboodle for nine ninety five. So that's one of the benefits of it. The first thing about this that I would say is, I have a general rule of thumb, and that that you don't have more than five percent, maybe ten percent of your portfolio in one single stock. Now, I'm big into diversification. A lot of people here at The Motley Fool are more comfortable having a more concentrated portfolio. But certainly, if you are investing in like your company stock, then I would say definitely keep it to 5%. So that, John, would lead me to say that you should definitely not do the market cap waiting where 24% of your portfolio would be an Apple. Sure. Yeah. And I, I have to second that, really. It's, uh, um, it, it seems like if you're just, uh, you want to be passive about this, just equal weight them at yep. that four percent figure or so, uh, and maybe if there's if there's something that you want a little bit more exposure to, like an Apple, move it up to five, maybe six percent, something like that. Uh, but there's no reason really to have Apple at twenty four percent. Right, and we've talked on previous episodes about how many stocks you need to own to have a diversified portfolio, and, it, and if you look at academic studies, it's all over the place. I think in our episode we decided thirty was. A good number. Um, I've talked with some folks recently. They said twenty. So I think twenty-five is a is a good range. Of course, it has to be diversified within those twenty-five. If it's all twenty-five tech stocks, then you're in trouble. Right. And again, it's not twenty-five with 
one stock at 25%. It's that's it's more or less roughly equal uh, right. among those to to really get the benefits of diversification. Yeah, and as years go on, well, you know, some stocks will do better. And I would definitely think once once a company starts to become close to 10% of your portfolio, it might be time to cut it back. Right, right. Do you have to worry about Say you're in a bunch of mutual funds. Do you actually worry about how much your mutual funds are concentrated in? Like, if crazy enough, between your portfolio of stocks that you personally manage and your mutual funds, do you look at all? Like, that seems like an impossible task. It's difficult to do, but I, it's actually an excellent point. Um, Morningstar has a good tool for that. It's called their portfolio x-ray, and you put in how much you own of individual stocks, as well as any mutual funds that you oh, own. Oh, that's cool. And it'll say, across all of your portfolio, you have 8% of your portfolio on Apple. And we're picking right. on Apple because if you own an index fund, uh, most you, of that, or at least the, one of the top holdings, is Apple, because the typical index fund is market-weighted. Right, exactly. And so, similarly, like Exxon might be in a variety of different funds. So, you might think, I'm getting great diversification because I have an S&P 500 index fund, or I've got a, a value uh, index fund, or I've got a whatever. A dividend-oriented dividend, fund. Dividend, right. And so, But Exxon is probably in every single one of those. And one of the top holdings. And it's one of the top holdings probably. in each of those. Yeah. So, you might have a, a 9 or 10% of your portfolio in Exxon. On and not really quite know that. Yeah, is that something to be scared about? Like, should everyone suddenly drop what they're doing and go like, <laughs> or is that like kind of a crazy example? No, or is, no is I would really say possible? I would say if you are if you're like in this fellow in John's situation where you are about to put a significant amount of money in Apple in one of these bigger companies, I think it's worth looking at how much of it is in the, the mutual funds that you own. If it's a small cap stock. If it's a lesser-known company, international stock, it's probably not going to be a big deal. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's episode. They keep coming back. It's great. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. If you like convenience and doing things as painlessly as possible, then Rocket Mortgage was made for you. Just a few simple questions and lift off. See what I did there? I've, I think I've made that joke before. Yeah. I think I've made that sound effect before. <laughs> There's only so many in your repertoire, so it can't all be arm farts. <laughs> if you're ready to refinance your mortgage or looking to buy a brand spanking new home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickandloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Every time it happens, it just feels that much worse. They say there's always next year, but that might be the curse. Skeptics say baloney, the poets make a verse. Sixty-some years later, they still blame it on the curse. Long-suffering Chicago Cubs fans have endured decades of loss and jokes at their expense. Yeah, that'll happen the day the Cubs win the series. Well, guess what? You know, they did once win the series back in 1908. And just because something happened once a long time ago, it doesn't mean it won't happen again. The Cubs still may not win the World Series, but plenty of other stuff that people said wouldn't happen has happened. So, joining us today to talk about five events that they said would never happen, not you literally, though, you didn't say they'd never happen, is Jim Royal. He's an analyst here at The Motley Fool. Uh, first of all, Jim, we brought you here for a couple of reasons. One, sure. you're a really smart guy, and you have a lot of knowledge in your noggin, which we will, we will get you. to that later. Oh. Um, 
but we are also Uh-oh. not really big sports fans here. Oh, sure. Well, not big baseball fans. Well, yeah. So as I say, like, bro has his football, Rick has his other football, and I've got like curling. I might be the last person in America who likes baseball then, is what you're saying. I think no, that's nice. <laughs> you're just one of the people that we know that likes baseball. So we asked you to come on both as an analyst and also as a fan of baseball. Sure. So lay it on me, the Cubs. Why are, Why is this a big deal? Well, historically, uh, this World Series is really a, a kind of battle between the very movable object and the easily stoppable force, <laughs> right? The Cubs haven't won in 108 years, and it's like it's not like the Indians are all that <laughs> much farther ahead of them. It's been 68 years for them. So really, one way or the other, some very drought-stricken team is finally going (laughs) to win one. We should probably tell people that at the time that we were taping this, the Cubs have neither won nor lost the World Series. They are the Schrodinger cat of teams right now. Um, But they are not off to a great start. (laughs) Right. We're, We're taping this after game one. Right. Yes. In which Cleveland scored infinitely more points than right. the Cubs. Yeah, uh, already, already down. Yeah, already down. So you know what? Maybe they won't win again. Uh, maybe they will. So it got us to thinking about other events that people said would never happen uh, in the world of economics and finance. And uh, we've got five of them here. So let's just, just go through them. Let's, let's just go. Let's do it. All right. First, number one, they said. The housing market would never crash. I mean, come on. It's housing. It's so stable. It always goes up, I heard. <laughs> right. Well, more, most famously, Ben Bernanke, back when he was an economic advisor to President Bush before he was chair of the Fed, he, he pointed this out. We've never had a, a nationwide crash in housing prices. So, you know, why would, it, why would we ever expect it to happen? And he said, basically, he didn't think that it was a bubble and that it would do much to the economy. Of course, he was wrong. Smart guy, not trying to pick on him individually. But his point was, it never happened in the past, so why should we expect it to happen in the future? But of course, it did. And houses, housing prices nationally crashed around 30%. And right. uh, we're still not back to where we were, getting close, within 5% or so of where we were in 2006. But we're still not there. So housing prices are still down from their peak. I was just going to talk about no night games at Wrigley until 1988, and then, boom, night games. They said it would never happen. Is this a a baseball thing? Yeah, it is. That's good. Bring in the baseball. (laughs) They're going to bring baseball for everything. It will rear its ugly head again. Do they just not want to buy the lights? Like, is that? I'm not entirely sure the background of that, but (laughs) (laughs) the inner work. Chicago finally got electricity. Actually, I was born in Chicago. They had electricity. Um, Another interesting thing about the history of the housing market is um, Mark Holbert in an article for Barron's a year ago, pointed out that in all of the bear markets in stocks since 1956, housing actually went up in value in 14 of those 16. One of those times when housing dropped, it only dropped like 0.4%. The other time it dropped was the recent time. Mm-hmm. So it's another example of up until 2006, Housing actually was just as good of a diversifier to your overall portfolio as bonds. But then came 2006, 2000, well, even till now. So, once again, showing just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. All right, next one. They said stocks will always yield more than bonds. I mean, come on. Right. So, for uh, the history of the stock market that we know of, and through the, from the 1800s up until the first half of the 1900s, Stocks actually yielded more than bonds. And it was considered 
that was the right way for things to be because stocks were riskier. So right, the dividend yeah. yield should you should be getting a higher yield from bonds. Then it reversed. It, it came close to reversing every once in a while throughout history, but then it always went back to where stocks yielded more. Then in 1958, stocks yielded less than bonds, and it stayed that way up until 2008. And when this happened in 1958, basically people were saying, well, this is a sign that stocks are overvalued, because when the stock prices go up, the yield goes down. So people were then saying, well, this is crazy. Stocks must be overvalued. We're going to sell our stocks and wait until they yield more than bonds. And if they really did that, they waited from 1958 to 2008. Right. Whoa, that's a long time. Right. Yep. Yeah, and absolutely. So a lot of that has to do with people's expectations, right? And it's it's um, uh, because stocks are more volatile, right? They want a higher higher yield on those on on those assets. And uh, uh, but finally, you got to a, a point where that investor mentality shifted, and they said, "Hey, look." Because these companies are growing earnings, we're willing to accept a lower yield on them now, with the expectation of capital gains over time, right? And so it really was a substantial shift in the market psychology about why you own stocks. Yeah, and it's very—it's a great example of someone taking. It's almost a market timing indicator, right? If if I see this sell signal, I'm going to sell and wait till it turns green again. But it didn't do that. Oops. Things do change, yeah. yeah. And, and a little bit of it may be as well, uh, people looking back at historical multiples, for instance, a very sort of similar, hey, this is what they've always yielded historically, therefore that's a sort of mean reverting level. Right? right. But there's no reason to say that that historical level was the right level, right? That's a, that's a values-based question that can change depending on how investors feel. Yep. All right, the next one. They said stocks will never lose over a 10 year period. Come on. Yes. Yeah, so if you look at data for US large cap stocks since 1926, according to Ibbots and Associates, and that most of that period, that's the SP 500, although before 1957, it was the SP composite. The worst decade for stocks was actually very recent 1999 to 2008. Uh, it lost on average, 1.3% a year. Now, I was in 1999. I was at the Motley Fool, as was Rick, and you know we were all. Most of us were engulfed in the dot com delirium. And if you told, if you said to any of us, "Oh, by the way, the S and P 500 is going to lose money over the next decade," we wouldn't have believed you. There were two decades that included the Great Depression that where it lost a little bit of money, but not very much. Um, and you could even rationalize that by saying, "Okay." Back then in the Depression, stocks lost money over a decade, but we also experienced severe deflation. So the stock market went down, but so did prices. So, but so your portfolio didn't actually lose purchasing power. From 1999 to 2008, S&P 500 lost money, and we had inflation. So people were actually worse off. But the real lesson of that period is that you shouldn't invest in just one asset class. So while U.S. large cap stocks lost money over that decade. Cash made money, bonds made money, international stocks made money, small caps made money. So anyone who had a widely diversified portfolio still did pretty well. It's the people who had their portfolios concentrated in an S&P 500 index fund who didn't do so well. And again, it's a testament to why you need to continue to invest every, you know, every month or every year, right? right. Because nobody's putting all of their money in you know, in 1999, right. hopefully, fingers crossed. Right. Right? right. They're buying throughout the period. And so it's a testament you keep buying. 
and yep. buy more when it looks cheaper. Right, and if you're retired, it's a testament to having a good five years worth of your income sure. out of the stock market, so you're not constantly selling a portfolio that is constantly going down. They said interest rates so low, some are even negative. That'll never happen. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense. It doesn't sense. make sense. Um, in June, uh, Bill Gross tweeted out this. He said, "Global yields lowest in 500 years of recorded history." Wow. $10 trillion worth of negative rate bonds. This is a supernova that will explode one day. And if you don't know, Bill Gross is kind of a pioneer in the bond fund world. He's often known as the Bond King. He co-founded PIMCO back in the early 1970s, and he's now with Janus. This is a guy who knows bonds. But he's right. Interest rates are just crazy low, including negative interest rates, which is this, it's almost hard to conceive of what that is. But it's basically, and it's, it's for the most part, it's coming from central banks in developed countries like Japan, the ECB, Sweden. It's basically you're you're saying I'm going to give you a thousand dollars, and I'm not going to get a thousand dollars back. That's it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the investment. I'm basically paying you a storage fee to hold my sure. my cash. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but even in U.S. stocks and U.S. interest rates, in July the ten-year Treasury hit 1.4 percent. That's the lowest it's ever been. Um, uh, Business Insider had a great graphic that showed the rates on 10-year treasuries back to when George Washington was president. And when you look at that, you really can appreciate, like, we're in unknown territory. This is a whole new world for bonds. What's the what? What comes next? Like, what? What's what is that supernova moment? Well, that's the th- we don't really know. We don't know what will happen. We've exactly. never done this before. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and you just got the the world so awash in cash, right? Assets looking for returns, uh, and the question is, how do you, in fact, cycle that through your economy instead of having you know this money searching for financial assets? How do you get it pushed through your economy? And it's a difficult thing, <laughs> difficult thing to do. Yeah, and while we don't have negative interest rates here in the U.S., Janet Yellen has not taken it off the table. So we'll see what happens. Last one. They said. Japan will never get out of its debt hole. And when I say debt hole like that, it sounds really <laughs> naughty, doesn't it? <laughs> Where's your mind at? Excuse really? me. Yeah. No, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, but go ahead. <laughs> right? It sounded aggressive. <laughs> All right, whatever. Yeah, it's been, it's, investors have been betting uh, against Japan for a couple decades, and it's really called, it's, it's, they call it a widowmaker trade because they've, they've, uh, uh, Investors have been betting against uh, Japan escaping this sort of debt black hole. And by, and by the way, the widowmaker is a term that was first applied to like the the heart or like the left artery, right? Because oh. it is the one when when you get blockage there, mm. you're gonna die, and that's why they call it the widowmaker. It's applied to this trade because right. these people are saying they're basically, if I understand this correctly, they're shorting Japanese bonds right. because they think they have to. Right, they have to. Um, the, the market's going to collapse, but it doesn't happen. So it's causing these people heart attacks because they're making these big trades that are just not paying and off for just them. Just losers. And every right. every every once in a while, there's somebody who comes up. This is this is finally going to be the year where it it ends. And just consistently, it's it's been a losing trade. And in fact, what's happening now is that the Bank of Japan is buying that debt from uh, private holders, just normal investors, and. "Quote unquote," monetizing it, right? Putting cash back out there, and there's a kind of what's what's happening now. In fact, is that Japan uh, is uh, rapidly reducing the amount of its public debt that's held 
uh, by public investors, and the fastest in the world, in fact. Yeah. Right. And so the the hope, the expectation is that you're going to put more money out there, and people are going to be able to spend it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to some extent, the U.S. has been doing that too. Right. Um, uh, but really, the question is, does that work? Uh, there's the expectation that this is going to continue for at least the next few years, and at that point. Uh, the debt that's going to be held by private investors is going to be about 100% of GDP. Uh, previously, it had been close to 200%. And, but what's the end game here? Does the Bank of Japan cancel that debt? Don't know. Uh, it's, it's really kind of unclear what, this, what the end game, what the final result of this is going to be. But and investors who thought this is a sure slam dunk kind of investment have for 20 plus years gotten killed. Yeah, Japan's an interesting story for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's really the question of how much debt can a country have and still function. Right. And they keep ex- exceeding expectations <laughs> in terms of how much debt right. you can have and still function. And the other thing about it is that we talk about being long-term investors here at The Motley Fool. Um, Japan, up until maybe two or three years ago, was the second biggest economy in the world. So, significant economy. The Nikkei, which is its primary stock index, reached almost $40,000 in 1989. Where is it today? $17,000. So it is less than half of where it was 27 years later. So it just puts the whole perspective in in terms of long-term investing and that sometimes, even if you hold on for decades, an investment doesn't pan out. Right. We're rooting for you, Japan. Yes. <laughs> we hope you can figure it out because we're kind of heading in that direction, at least in terms of debt. So if you can, you make it work, so we can figure out how we can make it work. I mean, they always say Japan is twenty years in the future, right? So. Yeah. Oh, they are. They are in the future. All right. What is the lesson here for everyone and for all the Cubs fans out there? Well, for me, the lesson is we make a lot of our investment decisions based on history. Uh, we look at we 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 invest in stocks for the long run because they're Plenty of articles and studies that show that, yeah, if you buy the stocks, you hold on for a long time, you do all right. But sometimes things happen that have never happened before. So you have to be prepared for scenarios that haven't happened in the past, but could happen in the future. And for me, that means being very diversified in your portfolio so that if something does kind of blow up, you have something else that will do well. wrong predictions aren't just limited to finance and sports, so let's keep poking fun at people who were brave enough to take a stance and were incredibly wrong. So, in addition to never having night games at Wrigley, which we already covered, uh, here are a few others that we found of people making really, really awful, horrible predictions. First one goes to Irving Fisher, and he said this in 1929, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Well, Mr. Fisher, unfortunately, said this, of course, right before the Great Depression. So um, that was very poor timing. And the thing to understand about him is that he was a big deal. He was the preeminent economist in the United States at the time. For so for him to say that, it really told people like, oh, okay, stock market's gone up a lot in the Roaring Twenties, but we're okay. I'm just going to keep holding on. Um, so his reputation took quite a beating after the Depression. So, another famous person once said, it will be years, not in my time, before a woman will become prime minister. And of course, the famous British person who said that was Margaret Thatcher in 1969. 
When did she actually become prime minister? It was early 80s. 80s 82, yeah. 83. Yeah. yeah. So just a few, few years later. Not she so was bad. sandbagging, I think. That must have been it. <laughs> <laughs> also famously, Decca Records rejected the Beatles by saying, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. When you look back at history, like the history of, of popular music, guitar really was seen as sort of like this lowbrow, cheap <laughs> instrument. And when it became more popular, it was like, oh, people aren't going to stick with this. Bring back the bands. I remember Nat King Cole singing a song about Mr. Cole won't rock and roll because it was considered such a lowbrow <laughs> form of music, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, a lot of these are... are are interesting because they're they're people who maybe um, their livelihood is being also um, under attack here. So, for example, we have Daryl Zanuck of 20th Century Fox said in 1946, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. <laughs> I kind of wish he was right, but it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. And people, go, people are increasingly watching movies, not in the theater, but staring yeah. at that plywood box. Um, also along the lines of technology, oh, this one's a fun one. In the early 40s, IBM's president, Thomas J. Watson, said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that persisted, actually, for quite a while, right? Even IBM said, who, who wants to own a personal computer? I think it was back in the right. 70s, right? <laughs> uh, just very, very long sort of resistance. Right. We'll get it. I mean, what can you do with it? It takes up a whole room. Yeah. <laughs> it just whirs. It like just makes all this heat. It's just, oh, who wants one? Um, also along the lines of that is YouTube's founder, Stephen, or Steve Chen, he said, there's just not that many videos I want to watch. <laughs> he was saying this concerned about YouTube's long-term viability. So, anyway, those are just a few more examples of people who um, were very, very wrong about where we ended up. <laughs> and we can make fun of them, because I don't make outrageous predictions either. So, whatever, I'll just stay safe. Uh, all right, well, who do you think is going to win? All right, I think the Indians are going to win. Yeah? Cut. No, not the Cubs. What they'll never, they'll bro, never win. Bro and I know nothing about baseball, so <laughs> us like predicting this is like I don't know. I was, I was born in Chicago. My mom's family is all from Ohio, so I have <laughs> split uh, favorite here. So I'll say the Cub Indians. Can I say that? <laughs> Your identity is really still bound up in the Cubs losing. Right? I guess so. Right. I don't know. Oh, uh, I'm just gonna say the Nationals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I thought they did pretty well this year, right? <laughs> they came close. They came, they close. came close. close. All right, Jim. Thank you for joining us uh, this week on the show. Uh, you actually, you actually get to do the shout out to our listeners this yeah. week. So shout out to uh, Cedric and Melissa in uh, in Paris. Uh, they were part of my all Luxembourg trivia team when I was in Paris recently. And you <laughs> and you just went into the bar and say, "Hey, people no. sitting there at that table, I'd like to join you for yeah, trivia." Exactly. And uh, they were familiar with Molly Full Answers. Which is crazy to that me. Is, that is pretty cool. <laughs> What's, what was probably crazier for them is that they were like, oh, fine, whatever, come join our team. And then you were like, oh, I work at the Motley Fool. And they were like, oh, wow, that's so cool. I imagine. This is how I imagine it right. went It went down, but with more French accents or Luxembourgian accents. Uh, and then they actually were like smacked in the face with just how smart you are at bar trivia. You are a force to be reckoned with at bar no, trivia. I, yeah, absolutely. No, I, the first lines of novels bring it on. Yeah, well, yeah. because yeah. you remind us why that is. You have a PhD in literature. There you go. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not just that. Like, don't don't go up against Jim Royal in bar trivia. That's all I'm saying. Or any kind of. Uh, I'm working smarts. on the Jeopardy tryouts. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be cool. 
So were they starstruck? Did they say, so what is uh, Allison really like? <laughs> well, I, I told him about Bro Camp's um, coconut bras. <laughs> the listeners aren't familiar with this, but they have, I have a long history of scantily cladism here at the Motley Fool. <laughs> well, they're familiar. They're familiar. <laughs> Naturism for you continental people. I didn't know you once wore a coconut bra. <laughs> Did you really? I've, I've worn many bras, actually. <laughs> It's not true, everybody. It's not really true. <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> I dropped my pants once or twice in, in company meetings, but that's yeah, it. I mentioned that to them too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm just friends me? with everyone in the comp in the company. No, that he had that. Oh, what? Sorry. But what, what did you say about me? No, I don't. I don't know anything uh, scandalous uh, about scandalous. You. Yeah, exactly. You're just awesome. I think is all he said. You had your chance for scandalous when your friend was on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Scandal. There are no something scandalous about tumbling, stories. Something about tumbling down a mountain in your underwear, I believe. Oh, did she talk about that? Yeah. Hey, tell at the time you fell down that hill on the Swiss Alps in your underwear and your skirt flying up over your head. Do we have non-underwear related <laughs> stories about me? I'm sorry. It's what I do for a living. <laughs> and you handled it with such Allison aplomb. You landed on your tushy with your hands folded in your lap. <laughs> so dignified. You fell down an alp, for God's sake. Oh, and, God. and then there was a bunch of teenage boys watching. And when she landed, it's like, my goodness, gracious me. And she just folded her hands and sat quietly. Was, yeah. And the boys were like, oh, my God. You know, they were Adventist boys. So they were like, oh, um, yeah, we didn't see a thing. But she's very, very cute undies. Yeah, yeah, I once did that. <laughs> also in France, by the oh, way. Yeah. Actually, yes, yes, it was also in yeah. France. No, it sounds like a French thing to do. Just <laughs> fall down a mountain no, in your underwear. No. no. Well, when in France. I've, I've seen London, I've seen France. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough for today. <laughs> the show is edited Parisianally by Rick Engdahl. Uh, our email is answers at fool.com. Drop us a line. For Robert Brokamp and Jim Royal, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.